With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply. Not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. Happy Canada Day. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my true patriot love, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. It is an O Canada. I actually don't like our national anthem. Really? I think it's pretty bad. Really? I don't know. Honestly. I was watching the, the women's soccer, and I was listening to other anthems, and I thought, you know, I was kind of proud of our anthem. It's nice and short. Some of them go a little bit long, and the words are, you know, nice, clear, and concise. But, you know, maybe it's my, you know, native tongue, so maybe the other ones are clear and concise in their tongues as well. I'm just saying it's... They're clear and and concise because 60% of the lyrics are the title of the song. Exactly. Anyway, I'm not going to stand up and defend many anthems as musical masterworks, but there are some that I like that are definitely a little more more zippy. Anyway. True enough. Now that I've alienated much of our domestic audience and alienated our international audience who don't care, this is a podcast about board games. This week we're going to talk about the games we played last week, we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, and we're going to talk about our feature game, which this week is Star Wars Outer Rim. So, with that in mind, let us talk about the games we played last week. I got to play Antica 2. Antica 2 is the sequel to, creatively enough, Antica no number next to it. This is by Matt Gertz. This is one of my top ten games of all time. talked about it before. I always have a tremendous blast when playing it and when introducing it to new players they always say the same thing you lay it out it's a map of the mediterranean or the near east and it's a civ game it's got a tech tree you get to do military you get to do economics and immediately people start buckling down for what they think is going to be a certain kind of experience and they're blown away by how quick and how smooth and how clean everything is the rules explanation it takes 10 minutes tops absolute maximum and the turns are flying by and everyone starts really getting engaged around turn two or three. It's like, wow, this is really good. The one downside being, of course, that I played twice as many times as anyone else at the table. So it's a no luck Euro game experience tends to predominate. I'm not very good at Antica. It's just, I've played it a lot. So you tend to smoke them, but new players love it enough because it's so accessible. It is for my, for my money, it is the definitive Civ Light game. There was this brief period uh, about 10 years ago where everyone was trying to des- design the new uh, light civilization game. And Antica, I think, is just the absolute masterwork. I adore Matt Gertz and almost all his designs, but Antica for me is probably my favorite. And this was requested. Somebody who'd only played it a couple times said, you know, I, re- I really want to play that again. Because, you know, it burrows into your head and it just starts occupying headspace because of how incredibly good it is. And so that was Antica 2. Had a blast. Oh, the, fan- the fact that you said it's uh, no luck, right? That way, when it's your turn, you know exactly what you're going to do, right? So there's none of this him hawing, right? You've figured out your turn. So that way, the game flows amazingly well. So you boom, 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 do your turn. Next person is ready to go. And as soon as you see that's how it goes, you make sure you're ready for when it's your turn. And that's what I love about it, for sure. Which is one of the reasons why I'll play it with six. 
Exactly. True enough. It, it flies along at such a good good clip that with six it still works fabulously. So it's it's a marvelously flexible game on top of how how good it is in terms of the decision making and how enjoyable the mechanisms are. Ugh, such a good player game. interaction that's not forced. Absolutely love it. Yeah, Antica two, Antica two. Got to play Council of Four again. We played Council of Four a few weeks ago, and we played the first printing of it. I commented that there was a Simon printing, and somebody of our mutual acquaintance b- brought it to a game night in the Simon version. And sure enough, the components are, you know, beautifully detailed figures, of course, but you don't get that lovely sensation of knocking a meeple off of a balcony, because whenever you alter the count, the eponymous councils in Council of Four, you get to shuffle along these, these four colored individuals. And in the first printing, they were meeples that were on a little balcony, and you got to slide them off, and it's great. In the Simon version, you just have to rearrange plastic figures. And it's fine, it's fine. I, you know, this is not a serious usability thing. And we have to say that in the rulebook, no, nowhere does it say that you're pushing guys off a balcony. It doesn't, sure. But, that, that's but a third of thematic invention of ours. Exactly. But it does tell you to literally shove them off from the end, so they know what they're talking about. There was actually a joke being made by someone at the table who has a pretty good facility with wood that he might design little wooden balconies for the plastic figures to get slid off. And then I think you might have the definitive edition. Council of Four is by uh, Simone Luciani and Daniel Tashini, who are two Italian designers that we like a great deal. And it's a very sort of dry, root-connecting game. It has a number of interesting little twists to separate it apart. It's it's, it's kind of like Ticket to Ride, but for gamers. And much better than like Turn and Taxis or those other kinds of root-connection things, or the 10 Days In, or the whatever. I really enjoy how there's this balance between the obvious route and then the things that are actually going to give you points. There's this tension because anytime you build a city along a link, you score everything along that link. And that can get rather tiresome. Once you get up to like six, seven, eight different bonuses, tallying them all up can be a little bit tedious. But there's this lovely sense of satisfaction. You get these gonzo turns where you get tremendous influx of things. But it's easy to forget. Those don't get you the points. What gets you the points is by going after non-geographically contiguous cities. And so there's this lovely little tension there. Yeah, the decision space, like you said. Like, I've only played the game once. And if I remember a game after only playing it once, you know that it's got the thing, right? And like you said, you can either make your little circles and stay in the same territory or spread yourself out. And so the decision space is there to decide, you know, are you going to build your engine and get it worked up? And then when are you going to make that transition and to start turning that into victory points? Love it. Yeah, I was consistently a turn behind. I'm really bad at it, which makes me want to keep going back to it. So a lovely, quick little Euro from Luciani and Tashini. And so we'll be looking forward to trying Council 4 again in whatever printing we happen to get it to the table. I only got to play one game this week, but it was it is one of my favorite games. It seems to be losing favor, unfortunately, among people. I don't know why. It is Deception Hong Kong. It is a great hidden role game. Who doesn't like Deception oh, Hong Kong? Huey doesn't like it. Dewey, when I talk to him about it, he says him and Han about it. And then a couple of, like, frickin' frack at the table, they were, you know, not too keen on it either. This so is disgusting. I we, was, need a, we need a better class of friends. I was introducing it to someone new, right? And when you introduce a hidden role game to someone who's only played, like, Monopoly or the traditional games, it, you get one of those awesome moments where their head just goes... <laughs> right and and they they see what's going on and they and you realize they they see how far games have gone since then and you know the world opens up to them and they start to understand why we enjoy these games so much so anyway deception hong kong in case you haven't played it before 
Uh, there's one person that's a forensic scientist. The rest are dealt all. Uh, one person's dealt a murder role. There's all sorts of expansions where you can have all different roles. But one person is the is the murderer. Everyone else is investigators. One person is the forensic scientist. No one knows who the murderer is. It's the typical everyone closes their eyes. The murderer picks two things that the forensic scientist can see, but they're not allowed to talk. They get to use these cards and try to tell the other players, try to steer them towards. The, this piece of evidence that the murderers picked out, but the, they don't know who the murderer is. So the murderer is also, you know, of course, trying to, you know, push, play along, play and, along say, and oh, put, Walker, your cards look like yeah, they definitely fit these clues. Yeah, and... he's trying to like push the, you know, the evidence towards somebody else. Anyway, it's a good fun game, and that is Deception Hong Kong. I get to play a couple of miniatures games. It was a good week for tabletop gaming in that sense. I got to try the beta rules to Gaslands Refueled. There was an extended beta period for testing the new rule set for Gaslands. And I say new rule set, it's not really new rules. There were a couple of rule changes that were mooted that were eventually abandoned. It's mostly a question of rebalancing costs, and I'm always a sucker for a good round of rebalancing. And Gaslands didn't need it, but it has profited from it. And it introduced a whole bunch of new factions in Gaslands and a whole bunch of new classes of perks. So your build options in Gaslands, which were already substantial, are now massive. And I tried out one of the new factions, namely Vernie, who likes to use dropped weapons, which is great for me because I loved using dropped weapons. And I had to say, in this uh, session of Gaslands, we were both myself and my opponent were trying something new. My opponent was trying something new in the sense of fielding just a tank. And I was fielding my traditional uh, motley assortment of one decent car and a couple of buggies with a, a, a fair degree of light weaponry. And I have never, in the history of games of Gaslands or the games like Gaslands, driven so well as I did in that game. I was circling with pinpoint precision and just dropping mines the entire time as my opponent cried in frustration as he wasn't able to swat down my annoying little buggy harassers. It was great. I had a blast. We tried one of the new scenarios as well, and it was it was uh, pretty interesting. And when uh, Refueled comes out, the new hardback edition of the rules is going to be coming out in September. I'm definitely going to be picking that up. If you haven't tried Gaslands yet and you're at all remotely curious, I by all means, don't wait for September. The softcover book is very, very cheap. Or find somebody who already has a softcover book and give it a shot. And you'll have a sense of what you like when the new rule set hits. Mike Hutchinson's got some great ideas, and he definitely knows where to take the, the the system. And there have been regular free updates on his website, and so I was very, very pleased to get another game of Gaslands in. The other miniatures game I got to try again was Rangers of Shadowdeep. Talked about this last week, how it is a solo or co-op tabletop miniatures game with a little bit of a campaign element, where you play an eponymous ranger and go through a bunch of scenarios. I will say that the system continues to delight there's just enough narrative texture in terms of how things are going, just enough customizations so that you can feel a sense of ownership or your, over your ranger, but not so much that it triggers my aversion to paperwork, which is still very much present. But I will say that the second scenario that we played was very disappointing compared to the first one. The first scenario had, again, just enough events so you didn't feel like you were going and playing whack-a-mole. Oh, a creature's come up, let's go murder them. A creature's come up, let's go murder them. The second scenario was very disappointing. It was very straightforward. Hardly any resistance. We had a couple of rounds where we had nothing to do, so we just stood around and waited for the events to trigger, which might or might not spawn something else to go kill. We'd investigated everything on the table. But the next scenario looks great. The next scenario's got the stealth element where you ambush a group of gnolls, and so long as you remain stealthy, you can get bonuses to attacks. And they're, again, 
relatively straightforward mechanisms. I, I made, I kind of half made fun of the AI system last time when I talked about it, how bone simple it is. And again, the next scenario introduces a stealth sub-mechanism that is again bone simple. And I'm very curious about how games represent stealth. I, I, a lot of it's going to depend on setting up the table properly, but I'm looking forward to giving that a shot. And uh, one final note about Rangers of Shadowdeep. I was remiss when not mentioning it last week. I was given my sort of pay-in to the joys of miniatures gaming and of having a substantial collection of miniatures terrain and things like that that you can deploy for for trying new rule sets. I should stress that Rangers of Shadowdeep, I don't want to dissuade anyone from going to get it, it assumes that you have a fair degree of familiarity with tabletop miniatures gaming. Like, for example, there's no elaborated section on what constitutes base-to-base contact that a lot of other rule sets might have. Or it doesn't talk about how line of sight works in miniatures games. It doesn't say, well, you know, squat and try to determine, here's how you resolve line of sight disputes. So if you're not accustomed to those kinds of things and you're not willing to sort of kit bash it or house rule it at the time of, then maybe this is not your your best first miniatures rules experience. I, I saw someone actually on the Facebook group saying, uh, you know, I just picked up this rule set. How do the how do the people move? Is there a template or something? It's like, no, you take a measuring tape and you measure six inches because that's how far they can move. So if that's not something you're used to, I, I, I don't think Shadow, Rangers of Shadow Deep is what I would recommend throwing yourself in the deep end for, especially since, again, the terrain requirements are non-trivial. But if you're if you're an experienced miniatures gamer or if you've done so done some miniatures gaming in the past and you're looking for something that's very, very approachable so long as you have the necessary bases, then Rangers of Shadow Deep continues to delight even when, as I said, the scenario wasn't super, super solid. So more to follow on Rangers of Shadow Deep. Finally, I got to try something which is not necessarily uh, much of a game, but it's a brilliant toy. It's called Beasts of Balance. This is nominally a stacking game. It has these lovely, lovely plastic pieces that, that are kind of highly stylized animals, and you stack them up on this plinth. And the plinth communicates via Bluetooth to your phone, and it animates all these animals, and then you start crossbreeding them, so you have a bear hawk, and you have a, a squid whale, and things like that. It's It's very delightful, even while it is murdering the battery on your phone. I have to say that it's it's surprisingly challenging. The shapes are relatively well done. As we comment often when talking about stacking games, the shapes matter a lot. And I'm really bad at stacking, although I like stacking games. So I'm interested to see what Walker does with it, to be honest, because you often find combinations that I never would have thought of, because you're much better at stacking than I am. And as far as uh, as the actual game element of it is, it's there doesn't seem to be a whole heck of a lot there. But there's this lovely joy of discovery in terms of what new creatures you encounter and what new crosses you find and what happens when you do various things. This is uh, this was put up by a sensible object in 2016. They put out a newer version with uh, so-called battle cards. I'm somewhat dubious about those. The competitive version, I you know, when playing Beasts of Balance, I, I I just have fun playing with the toy and experimenting with things. I'm not super certain it wants a competitive experience, but more to follow on that if we ever give it a try. And that was Beasts of Balance. I don't know how good of a game it is, but it's certainly a marvelous, marvelous toy. And if you don't want to play with toys, then I feel sorry for you. Exactly. All right, now on to the news and why it really doesn't matter. Mark, what did you find? So the Demarker reprint is up on Kickstarter. And I have to say I'm somewhat disappointed because although the rules changes for this new edition, the publisher Spielworks says has been done by Karl-Heinz Schmiel, there is not going to be the option of playing the original version in this so-called reprint. So but this is basically Demacher version, well, depends on how you want to slice it. Some people say that there have been three prior versions of the rules. They've been at least two prior versions of the rules, but they just changed details around the edges, like adding a new uh, a new player option and minor phase changes. This is going to be the first, I think, radical change to the rule set. And so a whole bunch of gamers are not going to be able to experience the original Demacher in all this glory. I'm not going to assert that the new version can't be as good because, again, 
Carl Heinz Schmiel is involved, and I have no end of faith in Carl Heinz Schmiel. He's one of my favorite designers. But it's a bit of a shame, and, and the responses of the publisher are very predictable. It's like, oh, well, <clears throat> we, we're not going to introduce the original rule set because, you see, number one, the new one is awesome, of course, and number two, you wouldn't have the components for it. To which the response is, well, then, guys, include the components. Make it a stretch goal. Make it an expansion. Charge $75,000 for it or something, whatever. We're not suggesting that automatically out the box it should be trivial. Yeah, or free or anything, right? Just, you know, make it an option. Yeah. So I'm somewhat disappointed in that. And there's already been some chatter on various fora from Demacher fanatics, uh, Demacher diehards or dehards, as they should probably be known, about how the new changes will herald the end of Western civilization and of German democracy as we know it. I'm not ready to go that far. But suffice to say that I'm glad I'm going to be able to hold on to my own Hans and Gluck edition of Demacher because it's it's a shame. Is Is it die harder the mockerer? Something like that. Okay. You know, the same thing happened, and I'm going to be actually mention this game again later. The same thing kind of happened with Merchant of Venus. Although in Merchant of Venus, it was it was worse because Fantasy Flight claimed you could play the original version in their reprint of Merchant of Venus. They were just lying uh, because the quote-unquote classic version of Merchant of Venus still had significant rule changes from the Avalon Hill original. But anyway, that is a different axe to grind. So, I mean, I'm curious to see what the new version of Demonker looks like, but I'm, again, disappointed that the original version will not be an option in the new printing. All right, I'm going to talk about a game called Flotilla, which I've already talked about, but apparently now it's available. So you can look for it up. It's about a genre that, you know, I've never played before and hardly ever comes to the table. It's post-apocalyptic, Mark. It What that means is that the world's been destroyed, like by a nuclear missile or something. Weird, right? Something you'd <laughs> never fathom, I know. And then, and then you're doing like the old uh, water world, you know, you're all piecing together all these boats and, and, and stuff and making this giant island. It looks very interesting. I am very much looking forward to playing it. And it's by WizKids. The game is called Flotilla. WizKids has got a lot of interesting stuff down the pike. I know, right? Welcome uh, Z comes into... Zev Slashinger, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we talked last year about how Asmodee was making a new subdivision that was responsible for pitching or adapting its various properties to television and movie productions. And we joked about how we didn't really see it, what this would look like. Well, now we have our first piece of evidence. Oh, I'm, I'm excited. It's the Ticket to Ride show, which we, details are scarce. It looks like it's going to be some sort of amazing race reality thing. I respect the fact that you adapt things and you brand things and that helps strengthen the brand and it helps increase recognition. I mean, after all, the film industry is proof of that. It's like you said you had wonder? I, I have days of wonder, Mark. Yeah. Especially when talking about Ticket to Ride. Huh? See what I did there? Yeah. See, see yeah. That's good, right? Huh? Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I just don't understand. I mean, The Amazing Race has been a very successful media franchise. Ticket to Ride has been a very successful board game franchise. And I mean, it's not an explicit marriage between the two, but it's a proven formula at least. And so I guess this is a way to adapt the proven formula. I mean, it makes more sense than, say, sponsoring an adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express, right? But <laughs> I, just yeah. I just can't wait when they, you know, run up to a vehicle or something, you know, that they need to take you know, to the next leg, and they say, oh, you got to have three yellow cards. I'm sorry, but you don't have three yellow cards. You can't come on this I train. am expecting at some point, if you do well on some sort of mini challenge, you get like a rainbow ticket, and the rainbow ticket allows you to bypass something. I don't know. Maybe we should be producers yeah, on this show. It's going to be great. So All let's right. take it to ride the TV show. 
I've got a fantastic game that's on Kickstarter, Mark. You ever want to relive those glory days of high school and, and, Never. and prom and, and dances with girls? Can Isn't I... that something you'd like to relive in a board game? Okay, first of all, uh, I was made to attend prom by my mom. Uh, <laughs> high school was okay for me, believe it or not, but that, that it had nothing to do with dances. Well, there's a game on Kickstarter right now called Dance Card, where you can re-fulfill all these fantastic fantasies of of dancing with the most popular girl in school. Isn't or that, boy. Or boy. Well, you can dance with whoever you want. Who I can. I, who am I? And it, that's even shown in the game. It looks like it's going to be a fantastic little romp back through the ages. What's the game called? It's called Dance Card. So you have your little dance card, you show up at the dance, and you have to dance with certain boys or girls, and and if you're shot down, you have to go to the, you can bring them into the chat room and chat them up a bit and increase your chance, increase your dice pool, <laughs> so when you bring them back out to the dance floor, you have a better chance of rolling your successful dance roll. Mark, I am a tither with anticipation for this game. I I would actually like to play that. I would also very much like the uh, Japanese expansion that introduces giant robots. I'm sh- I'm sure it will be out. It's going to be great. So that's Dance Card by Michael Maconian. A little bit of follow-up to last week. We talked about the Bloomberg article written by Eric J. Francis entitled, This Board Gaming Craze Comes With $2,700 Tables. And we, and by we I mean me, made some shall we say, uh, uh, joking remarks about the level of insight displayed in the article to the culture and to various details. And the author, Eric J. Francis, reached out to us uh, just to give us a little bit of context, because this is one of those salient reminders about how, despite how we are editorialists, and genuine editorialists may be journalists, but we ain't journalists, because one of the things you're supposed to do if you're an actual journalist, which, again, we're not, is you're supposed to call and ask people for comment. You're supposed to reach out and say, would you like to comment? We're, we're going to be doing a story on something. Would you like to comment on something? And had I done this, I wouldn't have felt quite like such a jerk when it, when Mr. Francis reached out and said, look, guys, there's this thing called the editorial process. I was writing for Bloomberg. I gave them this article. I don't get to pick the title. I don't get to pick what they keep, and I don't get to keep uh, uh, choose what they cut. Even if I were a full-time employee there, I'd still be subject to the whims of the editorial board, and I'm not. I'm a freelancer, so basically the power differential is such that it's just a whole bunch of guys who know nothing about board gaming who get to decide the tone and tenor of the article. So, yeah. Mark, I want to you know mark the calendar because, you know, I'm coming to your defense, believe it or not. We do this with board games all the time, and we've heard this with board games all the time. The designers will come back and say, oh, well, I didn't get any say in the final production of this game. The production people and everyone else took it over and they changed the game. So what are we to do? Are we to go to call out and, you know, before we knock a game, say, well, is this your final version of the game? Is this what you wanted? What we did or what you did, you talked about a final article that was published. So I I don't think that you should. I, I I agree what you did was fine. You know, you know, uh, I'll not apologize, but put into context what we said. But I really I really feel as though, you know, what you what we said was fair because we talked about the specific article and how it was written. I agree with you 95%. The 5% that's different is I made borderline well, I didn't disparage the man, but I made I made personal characterizations of the author. Ah. Right? I said that this this the the content of the ar- of the article made it clear that the author didn't know anything about gaming culture. That was unfair. 
I should have stopped, like you said, at the content of the article. I shouldn't then try to speculate because, again, it's not just one person. It's not that one person writes an article and then it is republished in its entirety. There's a whole bunch of people involved in altering things. When we And when we talk about games, we often don't make specific attributions to the designer either. We talk about the designer, we talk about their previous work. But we don't say, and this is an indication of why this designer does not understand what players like to do to have fun. We talk about the game as a product, right? This and I should true. have talked about the article in the same way if I wanted to say anything about Mr. Francis specifically, I should have reached out to Mr. Francis for, for comment. And I'm very glad that he reached out, and this is this is definitely going to inform our coverage going forward, certainly of media coverage, certainly of other things. Uh, so uh, he has posted a bunch of the clarifying, contextualizing remarks that he sent to us. He uh, presented it in a slightly different form in a Reddit thread that we will link to in the episode description. If you've read the article, if you haven't read the article, I encourage you to give it a look. It's very interesting, and it gives you a little bit of insight into how the journalistic process occurs. So, that is the follow-up from the Bloomberg article from last week. That is the news, and why it does not matter. On to our feature game this week, which is Star Wars The Outer Rim by Fantasy Flight Games. So this was designed by Corey Koneska, and it's listed on the box as with Tony Fonke, and or Fonchi, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce Tony's name. And the way it's being presented in the rulebook is that it was designed by Corey Kaneska and Mr. Fanchi did development work. So this is, if this is just a way to give credit to developers, I'm all for it. If this is a way to emphasize that this is primarily a Corey Kaneska joint when it was a joint design, less of a fan. So it's tough to tell. This could be one of those instances like the great Eric Lang phenomenon at Simon, where suddenly everything is an Eric Lang design, or this is this is the uh, effort to give credit where credit is due. I'm going to be charitable and assume it's the latter. Mr. Fonchi has mostly done expansion work. You know, he's been credited to a couple of expansions in, say, Mansions of Madness or a variety of the other Fantasy Flight, big, sprawling, uh, you know, he's had has had his hand in Imperial Assault, stuff like that. Corey Kaneska, on the other hand, is, for a long time has been one of the key designers uh, in Fantasy Flight Stables. Uh, I'll start with the games he's done that I like. Uh, he's done Rune Wars. He's done Space Hulk Death Angel. He did Gears of War. He's got some very interesting stuff. And then he's done a bunch of other stuff like Starcraft, Descent Second Edition, Imperial Assault. He did Discover Lands Unknown. I saw that. Yeah. Corey Kaneska's design for a long time were taken to be very emblematic of a style of game that we don't really talk about anymore, namely Ameritrash. You know, the, the great Ameritrash Euro conflicts of, of 15 to 20 years ago have largely died down and hybridization is now the order of the day. But his designs were always very mechanically intricate, usually very process heavy. So for example, in order to move something somewhere, it was usually not enough to just say, okay, I'm moving it there. You got to put down a command token and then you got to marshal the things and then they're they're pinned there for a variety of... Anyway, whether you like that or loathe it, uh, he was also involved in Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, so naturally. Whether you like that or loathe it, it's very much the case that Corey, uh, Corey Kaneska has a kind of a, a design signature, which he's kind of been branching out from of late. Discover Lands Unknown amongst its many flaws... One couldn't uh, accuse it of being overcomplicated. And uh, Star Wars Outer Rim is also, I think, a bit of a departure from his previous designs. And uh, so why don't we, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Star Wars Outer Rim? Well, Mark, hang on to your blaster and lightsaber because here we go. <laughs> you are an outlaw in the Outer Rim. You're smuggling goods. You're collecting bounties. You're, inva- you're invading the popo. You're having duels with other players. You're having these crazy 
dogfights in in Starcrafts. You're gaining reputation and gaining your fame to become the ultimate outlaw. Really? Boy, doesn't that sound exciting? Eh? Is that what we did? Whew. Man, that almost makes me want to play it again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember. Okay, so some of those details sound vaguely familiar, but the overall tenor is completely alien to me. No pun intended. So the, the overall uh, the overall setup of the game is basically the same as all the other elite derivatives. Elite being the epic making, sort of freelancing uh, space ex- uh, exploration and adventure game. Uh, so these are board games like Zaya Legend of a Drift System. This is Firefly, maybe sort of Merchants and Marauders, almost in space. A number of people have made that comparison. Or even some things that are less uh, combat-focused, more mercantile-focused, things like Merchant of Venus. You've got a ship. You've got a character. Go out and make your fortune, either literally or in the case of other games like this in terms of fame. And... So they're not quite sandboxes. They're often like sandbox adjacent. They seek to give you lots of different ways that you can make your way in the galaxy. But that's, that's more or less the wheelhouse of Outer Rim. Well, Mark, I got some neutral points here. Do you want to get into this? You're like... Okay, based on my my understanding of the Walker review process, TMNC, you always start with the good points no, and no, then no. you lead to... <laughs> no, no. What I, actually, this is the format I have. I have points that are just very interesting in the game, like good game mechanics that are neither good nor bad. And wait, then I have good wait, they're, points they're, and bad They're good points. game mechanics, but they're neither good. I'm confused. Well, I mean, like, they're just like standard, nothing special, but they just work well in this game. Okay, Sakatsumi. You pick a character, you're going around and you're picking up goods, and you're dropping off goods, you're collecting bounties, you have these four neutral factions that are moving around the board, you know, that are messing up your movement or, you know, making you miss a turn because they've, you know, blown up your ship. You are upgrading your ship you're upgrading your gear you're trying to get to 10 fame points and when you do you win that is the outer rim in a nutshell so some just neutral points like so every character has a personal goal which is very interesting all the characters are different they all have special abilities and they all have these unique special goals and when you accomplish it not only do you get a fame point usually but you also get to flip the card over and you get new abilities or an upgraded ability so what's weird about me and I'll, I'll admit that most of, uncharacteristically, all my good points are mechanical, and all the major shortcomings and the reason why, spoiler alert, I did not enjoy Outer Rim has mostly to do with those nebulous things of feel, but I'm going to try to give an explanation as to why that is. So mechanically speaking, uh, you, touch a, you touch on the fact that every character has a unique goal. Similarly, every ship that you can buy also has a unique goal. And the actual victory conditions of the game... There are some elements of Outer Rim that are kind of neat. Namely, there is nothing that you can spam to repeat over and over and over again to constantly be getting points. And this is one of your criticisms of sandbox games, and I think it's an excellent criticism. You know, you, you get the right combo, and then you just exploit it to the end, uh, to the end of the game. This is true of Western Legends, true of Zaya, it's true of a lot of games like that. You can't do that in Outer Rim because everything is just a one-shot source of points, and then it is gone. You have to buy another ship to get a new objective. You can't get a new personal objective ever, so... So there's at least that avoiding that pitfall that you tend to find in games like this. All right. And then there's these skill tests, like you said, in order to do things. Sometimes they ask you to do skill tests. Every character has a unique set of skills. And to segue into some good points, the crew that you pick up also adds to these different types of skills. So a card will say, you know, you need to get a success on this skill test. And if you have gambling, then you get a bonus, right? If you, you know, you need to roll less. And I thought a lot of the skill tests were kind of interesting. The fact that, you know, they integrated these different, different characters will have a, another better advantage to some things than others do. 
I, I do like how the crew works, hiring new crew and giving you access to new keywords, because all the skills are just basically keywords. Whenever you do a, a skill test, if you have the keyword, it gets easier. If you don't have the keyword, it gets harder. But there are situations, and this is true both of skill tests and of combat tests, where the game seems to funnel you into a situation where you just need to keep bashing your face against the wall because you just need the dice to turn out. And normally this isn't a problem in most of your modern games that rely on dice because either you'll be doing something else next turn or you have some kind of resource or some ability to try to finesse the dice or there's some notion of gradations of success. It's not just a quick pass, you succeed and move on, fail, well, try again next turn. And yet that's what you're doing in Outer, uh, Star Wars Outer Rim. Fa- oh, I failed. Well, I guess I better stay here and try that again next turn. Now, maybe this is stupid play. Maybe a true grandmaster of Star Wars Outer Rim would have been like, eh, well, you know, the odds were good for the first throw, but I'm not going to bother wasting my time. I'm going to go do something entirely different. And sometimes it's just a little dull, and sometimes it's actually degenerate. There was one situation, and this kind of uh, touches on a, a couple of the other things you, you pointed at, where it was in my interest to just constantly attack you over and over and over again until I won, even though I was I was less good at combat, but I was better at dealing with the consequences of a failed combat. And so we were both just skipping our turns, basically. I kept skipping my turn because I, I just had to keep fighting you, and you kept skipping your turn because you had to keep healing all the damage you were sustaining while I kept losing. And I feel like the skill tests are the same thing. It's like, if you fail a check, just try it again next turn. And that's... it. I'm not asking for a greater sense of consequence. I'm asking for a greater sense of nuance, a greater sense of control, a greater sense of agency, a more interesting way to resolve success or failure rather than just a hard roadblock. Oh, I'm thinking there what they should have done instead is... Just had a like a sort of uh, laddered reward. Sure. If you succeed, this is what you got. If you fail, this is what you got. Move on. Next thing, go. Instead of, you know, like you said, just cycling in there the same turn. Okay, my last neutral point is the fact that there are eight different characters to choose from. There are th- three main mechanisms in the game that we've already talked about. And that's delivering cargo, doing bounties, ship goals, and personal goals. And... The all the different characters, you know, funnel into those three different categories, and they're all good at those. You know, certain ones are good at certain things. So I thought that was an interesting way to play, even though it does sort of like funnel you into a certain way of playing the game. So I, I do another thing that I like. I just want to talk structurally is I like the action system. The way a turn works in Outer Rim is you either move, heal damage, or take money. You often just end up taking money when you're just sitting around waiting for that success to come around, like I talked about. Then you get to do actions, and actions are basically free. You can do any number of actions, so long as you don't repeat the same action twice. And what that does is it dovetails rather nicely, I think, with the way that the crew upgrades and the ship upgrades work. Because in a lot of games like this, where you either move into an action or you get two actions on your turn or something like that, a lot of upgrades just cease becoming interesting. Because you look at the action that it gives you and say, well, I've got better actions available. I'll never get around to using this. Who cares? But here, whether it's uh, some weird one-off action or permanent upgrades let you do actions over again or character abilities that give you access to a new action... They feel kind of cool, and so as your ship gets tricked out, it doesn't get terribly complicated or terribly cumbersome, but you do get to do lots of new and interesting stuff as you get more powerful because of the action system when it works properly. So that was one thing that I actually really enjoyed. One thing I enjoyed was the theme of the actual game, in a way, is the fact that when you went to a certain planet, you saw people that were supposed to be there in the movie, and they made you go to another planet that would actually happen in the movies, you know what I mean? It sort of put you in the story sort of in the outskirts and said, you know, well, this is what happened and this is why it happened. I thought they did a good job of sort of weaving the game into the movies. (sighs) Okay. Here's the thing. 
And I just want to say right off the top, these are not stunningly original criticisms. These are basically the same criticisms that the people at Red Letter Media have been issuing for a very long time. And a number of other writers that I really respect, like Chris Farrell, have been talking about the same stuff for a while. It's properties like this, like Star Wars Outer Rim, that make Star Wars feel really, really small and claustrophobic for me. Here's what I'm talking about. Let me give a specific example, because I do I do enjoy me some Star Wars, the actual Star Wars, the, the core Star Wars movies, you know, the original trilogy, and I even kind of like the new trilogy a little bit. But <clears throat> So that one scene from Empire, right, where they're on the bridge of a Star Destroyer and they've lined up a bunch of bounty hunters, and the only one who ever talks is Boba Fett, and he has like two lines, I think, in that movie, maybe only just one. Those six bounty hunters are responsible for an overwhelming proportion of all the bounty hunter and miscellaneous stuff that the Star Wars universe has ever given us, especially as represented in games like this, right? I used to play uh, X-Wing for a while, and I'll, I'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. And I played the, 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 the scum faction, and just those six people just keep showing up over and over and over again. Similarly, moving away from the issue of bounty hunters, those two Jagoffs in the, the, the cantina at Mos Eisley, one of whom gets his arm cut off, they just keep showing up all over the place. Why? Because people recognize them. So you might as well stuff them. Hey, shove them into Rogue One, whatever. It's like, hey, put them in every Star Wars game. Give them a card everywhere. It's, is this all that Star Wars has? It's a universe of infinite possibilities, but instead we're just rehashing the same small set of touchstones over and over again. Why pay for a license if you're not going to use it, Mark? I'm not suggesting they don't use it. I'm <laughs> suggesting that instead of this, this because this is my overall problem with Star Wars Outer Rim, it feels like a small universe of relatively boring events. So the size of the universe is already a problem. This is a small set of people that get regurgitated halfway through the second turn of the second game. I'm like, I've seen all this before. I, I, I've seen all these characters, all the character chits that get, that, that get spread out over the galaxy, somewhat more or less randomly, I should point out. So you're yes. playing whack-a-mole with bounties, and there's not this, this tight connections like, what is Chewbacca doing here? I don't know. He's a smuggler. He can be anywhere. Fine. Whatever. And the event cards similarly don't produce anything of a particular note. So you end up with this very, very, very tiny feeling universe. I don't feel like I've been let loose in an expansive environment to go play around in. I feel like I'm just dredging up the same half dozen references that we've been subjected to in geek culture for the past 10, 20 years. That's right. You're in the story and you're just waiting for it to happen. Yeah. 100%. And it's not even, and it's just the same story over and over again. It's like, oh, IG-88 wants to shoot somebody. Oh, okay, sure. That's the story. Like, ugh. All right, believe it or not, it's my last good point, and then we can go to my six pages of bad points. Okay. I thought the game was fairly close and balanced. The games that we played, you were fairly close to win. The, la the last game we played, you know, I would have won in the if I had a turn, and, you know, you won it before I did. So I thought that, you know, no one will really run away with the game. In my opinion, even though I thought I was like totally losing, I was surprised that if I had a turn, I would have still pulled it off. Yeah, there are a number of events that introduce a little bit of player interaction. They're usually keyed off of you can go attack somebody if they are beating you in terms of points. And that was relatively well done. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I had to dig for something good. You know, I had to, I had to, say, <laughs> I had to say something. All right. On to the bad points. Oh, my God. All right. Let's just start at the very beginning. The setup for this game is ridiculous. There's like, what, like eight different decks you have to shuffle and More put around that. the board. More than eight, and then you know, picking your characters, and then you have to pull their cards and find out where you set up. And the teach—I'm not saying it's a hard game to teach, but it's not worth learning. <laughs> 
Well, there, there are some tricky distinctions about what constitutes an encounter and the, the various ways the patrols can mess you up. But I, I, it's, it's hard for me to fault the setup too much because it's in the context of a game that's already overlong. Games of Star Wars Outer Rim at two players are going to clock in at least a couple of hours. And every player you add just large times straight on top of that. So I've heard reports of people playing four-player games that lasted well in excess of three and a half to four hours. I have no difficulty imagining that. We never played with four because we didn't want to contemplate the possibility of doing that. Because I didn't want to contemplate subjecting someone else to this game. Well, there's that too. But And, and a lot of it is just procedural tedium. It's like, okay, I've got to move from one end of this out, stupid outer rim all the way to the other end. There are no tricks you can do with movement. It's just a question of, okay, here are my six movement. Yeah, drawn, what, drawn event card, whatever. That's the same thing. Everything is samey. You yeah. know, you're, you're going somewhere to to grab something and bring it somewhere else, whether it be a bounty or a piece of cargo or, or a ship that you have to move. It's just, you know, I, I need to go here and then I need to go somewhere else. And do I have enough to get there? No. And then there's the cards that force the player interaction. Like you look over the thing and says, you know, oh, you have to attack another player to do this. You have to attack, you know, but, and there's no other way to, what, they say you can trade goods and stuff, but I don't see why you'd ever want to do that. That that ties into one aspect that I think you're that you're already going to complain about, and that is the deck milling. So there are all these market decks. There are these stacks of market decks, and you see whatever's on top. And as a market action, you can cycle one of the decks and or you can purchase a card from one of the decks. If you really need bounties and there's no bounty showing, you got to mill that deck and try to find that bounty. If there's a bounty out that you can't fulfill, well, mill for a better bounty. You're looking for mods. There's no mods available. Cargo, illegal cargo. You're looking for a ship you need to buy. Whatever. Mill that deck. Try to find it. And that's the primary driver of how the points work, because even the personal goals and the ship goals are often tied to specific things coming out of the market decks. And in addition to feeling random, it just feels tedious. Well, that's what, that's what, uh, you are right. That is what I'm going to talk about, is the card milling. When we're playing games, and I'm not enjoying myself, you know that I try to, try to... Uh, pull the game into, like, where would this game work? Why did they make this game? Will this be a good gateway game? Is this a good Star Wars game? How how can this game be good in certain contexts? And if you are, and I think I found one, if if you're w- looking for just a Star Wars experience and, and you don't really want to play a game, <laughs> no, I'm, no I'm, I'm not trying to be, I'm just saying, if you just want to p- play it for the theme, like there's some story there and there's some cards that, you know, you're you're shooting things, you're bounting and you, you don't care about the fame points, you might have fun playing this. But if you are trying to game it out and try to win by getting fame points, which is the victory points, like if you were trying to game it out, it simply breaks down to milling those decks. And that is not fun. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, because again, when it comes back to the narrative that this game tells, the narrative always boils down to, and yeah, part of this is still building in the, the mechanical elements here. It's go to this place and chuck some dice. And well, I'm not saying the story's great. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying sure. if, if, you know, if, if, if I had to put it into some slot, then that's where I would try to. Right. So also in terms of, of how well it represents the theme, I was honestly shocked at when I was buying new ships. Because one of the games had just decided, I'm just going to buy a whole bunch of new ships and see if that makes things more more entertaining. I actually was having more fun remembering games of X-Wing I played with the various ships that were represented in the game. I don't even like X-Wing all that much. It's a minis game that I played for five hot seconds and, and eventually decided it wasn't really my cup of tea. But buying the Shadowcaster... 
the, the Lancer Assault Craft, that is, in Star Wars Outer Rim, and then going and being either a bounty hunter and or a smuggler was a tedious exercise of just counting out movement and pulling from an encounter deck and trying to get something that, that, that could make work. But I could remember great matches of X-Wing involving the Lancer Assault Craft and how unique the turret system was. What I'm saying is the ships had more personality and I felt more of uh, more detail and texture in a game of X-Wing with these ships than I did in Outer Rim with all this sort of th- all these thematic trappings of what's supposed to be Grand Space Adventure. Well, that's what I thought it would be really cool is to have your, you know, grab your X-Wing box and put it beside the table and actually put your ship out on the table and move around with the ships. That would have made it way more interesting. <laughs> Quite possibly. And I have a po- let's go through some quick points here. Like you said, it doesn't feel like you're in space. You've already talked about this, that it makes you feel cramped, puts you into like this tight tunnel, even the moving around the board, you know, it doesn't really feel like you're moving in space, being blocked by these patrols, like does not make you feel that you're in space. The patrols dovetail with the bad elements of the combat system. There are two ways, both pat- both patrols and m- many of the consequences of the combat system are two ways to make you skip a turn. We constantly talk about how skipping a turn is terribly boring. And in a game that's already reasonably boring, if I want to go to Mos Eisley or, or Cantonica or Naboo or wherever, and there's this piddly little thing in the way, I don't find a tremendous degree of texture and it gives it, ooh, there's this X-Wing blocking my path. I'm encountering the Rebel Alliance. No, it's just I'm being made to skip a turn. It's obnoxious. The randomness. So we already talked about the fact that it's the middle of the cards. So you're randomly drawing off these cards, hoping that you're getting them off. There's all these. We've talked about the chits that you randomly scatter all over the board. Like they're either uh, uh, bounties you're looking for or people you're trying to find. So it's like whack, like exactly you said, whack-a-mole. You're going all over the place, flipping these up, trying to find the one you want, completely random. And then when you do get into some sort of combat, you're at the mercy of the dice. Are they going to be forgiving or are they going to just make you waste another turn? So a lot of the game is a lot of randomness. And again, it's weird because the dice the, 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 the dice that are used in Outer Rim are the same dice that are used in X-Wing. And one of X-Wing's virtues is it had this great system involving focus tokens where you could spend, gather and spend a resource in order to finagle your dice results, which again is totally absent in Outer Rim. Still, once again, not enough dice. We constantly yeah. had a new re-roll, what else is new? re-roll dice. Then they have this intricate influence system, the, the you know, where you're you have reputation, reputation, with the four the reputation factions. So you have this whole part of your player board that has these interesting little sliders. You know, do you have positive or negative influence with these guys? Reputation. And at first, it seemed as though it might be interesting, but it would seemed in the end was just a waste of time and just yet another thing that was random. Oh, card comes up. Do you have positive or negative? You know, reputation. What's going to happen? Do 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 do. There's this whole deck of story cards that goes from one to ninety-eight, and of course, there's all sorts of numbers missing because you know there's going to be. Uh, you know, in fantasy flight fashion, probably an expansion that will make it even worse. But I really feel as though that was a lost opportunity. A lot of games have this where it says, you know, go to card 56 and you'd go to 56 and there'd be like a story. And I really think they should have had more arcing stories. Like, you know, where you had one on a card, which isn't, it was one card where you had to go through multiple steps. But I'm wondering why didn't they have multiple cards where, you know, you might have, you know, come in halfway through it or right from the beginning and sort of follow the story along. I think they could have done something with that. They could have injected some sense of wonder, of surprise. Yes. Because again, after the first play, I felt like I'd seen everything. I felt like I'd seen all the major touchstones. I've seen I'd seen all the character chits because most of those encounter cards are tied to character reveals. Overwhelmingly, they're of the same format. Pay a two to three thousand bucks 
if you're not despised by some faction, to hire them as crew. And that's more or less it. That was just the standard recurring thing of these character chats. Or you could shoot them in the face if you had a bounty on them. And so this 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 deck of cards, which again has this tremendous opportunity for anything to happen. You can do anything you want in, in, in these cards. I would have honestly preferred if they'd sacrificed some of that balance that we previously lauded. If something really, really cool had happened. But nothing really cool happens. It's just a, a, a function of the most interesting ones are, as you say, this four-part skill check where, well, if you fail the skill a skill roll, try again next turn. It's like, oh, jeez. This actually segues into my opinion pieces, which is going to be it was painful to play and I wanted to stop. Like, there's not many games. There really aren't many games that I want to stop playing and not finish. And this, every time I played it, was the case in Star Wars Outer Rim. At the end of the day, it was tedious, overlong, mechanically fine, but bereft of any sense of adventure or wonder or excitement. And it really did make me feel like I was in a very claustrophobic, very, very narrow galaxy of chores for me to fulfill. Yeah, it was like an empty victory. Like, it's like, get to 10 fame. And when you do, it was just sort of like, yay, I got to 10 fame. So didn't, you know, had empty victory. I already talked about trying to put this game into a slot. I, I do not feel as though it is a good gateway game. There's so many better ones out there. I do not think it is a good Star Wars game. I think it is the worst of all the Star Wars games that I've ever played. And I don't think the expansions are going to make it any better, nor should we really have to wait for an expansion to make it better. Hmm. Makes me want to play Merchant of Venus again. Break out the old Avalon Hell Classic. Makes me want to play X-Wing. You know, it kind of made me want to play X-Wing too, but I'm not going to. Anyway, that's... Do you have anything else to say about Star Wars Outer Rim? I think we pretty well said everything. We really love this game, and uh, we are each going to make sure we own a copy, and we're going to teach it to everyone we know, because it's the greatest game of all time. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply. Not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon.